Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litbeck and I'll be your host. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Lee B. Wilson about her book, Bonds of Empire, The English Origins of Slave Law in South Carolina in British Plantation America, 1660-1783, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Dr. Wilson is an associate professor at Clemson University. Bonds of Empire explores how English law gave the institution of slavery its ability to thrive and grow. By looking at how law was practiced, instead of solely focusing on how it was written, Dr. Wilson explores the development of the institution of slavery in South Carolina and the English law of slavery in the colony. The day-to-day legal life of slavery in the colony shows just how much English law was crucial and not opposed to the enslavement of people. Dr. Wilson, welcome to the program. Thanks, Eric. I'm excited to be here. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this this topic, why you decided to study it? Sure. Uh, Well, I have a legal background. I have a law degree and uh, studied at UVA under Paul Halliday and Max Edelson um, and was very interested at first in looking at some of the ways that colonists used older English legal tools, especially in the South Carolina, South Carolina and Caribbean. Um, And I wrote an article in grad school about escheat, which is this medieval English legal tool by which the crown would take land. And I I was examining how that was used in Jamaica to take both land and slaves and then to build these big plantations. Um, So when I started doing the research for this and then expanded into South Carolina, um, I started to notice a lot of these older private or property law tools um, were being applied to slaves in different contexts. And this really got me started thinking about how private law and especially property law um, from England was used in colonial contexts and adapted um, for slave societies, um, and particularly how the decision to classify slaves as chattel property made it easier for colonists to access this sort of older toolkit, if you will, of English legal practices. And so when thinking about this, one of the things to start the book off talking about is, you know, how we should understand, you know, quote unquote, the law and what the law is. And so if we're thinking about the law and its relationship to society broadly during this period, how should we understand it? And how does this sort of understanding of the law intersect with slavery? That's a great question. And I I think about this a lot and try to explain it to students a good deal. Um, I think that we're used to thinking of the law, in quotes, as this one singular thing, as an answer to a question, perhaps. What is the law? And then you expect this substantive answer, a singular answer. Um, But I like to think, and I think most legal historians think this way, of law not just as an answer, but a set of arguments. Um, And that's true for today as it was in the past. So when we look at colonial America and other 
past societies, we like to say that law was deeply imbricated in these past societies, meaning it's hard to peel off from other categories of things like politics or religion. Um, And in the English context and and in the colonial British American context, it's also really hard to say that law was just one thing, that it was singular, because law was really plural. Um, We make the mistake often, I I think, because we are um, in a mindset in which statutory law is deemed the law to always look at legislation. But in the colonial period, that wasn't the case. Law came from many different places. There were many different jurisdictions. So you do, of course, have legislation in the American colonies coming from colonial assemblies. But there are also court cases and not just common law courts. So in the book, I also explore vice admiralty courts and equity courts. There are a lot of multiple overlapping jurisdictions um, that are transplanted from England. If you look at the jurisdictional map in England, you can see it's incredibly complex. And in places like South Carolina, um, that's replicated in many ways. So it's a very complex legal environment. Um, but And then again, you have law in practice, how people acted. So just because the law says something, there's a statute um, that's prescribing some kind of act, uh, people don't always act in accordance with the law uh, categorized as legislation. So if you think of it today, and this is how I explain it to students, um, we create speed limits to regulate speed. Everybody knows or should know what the speed limit is on a particular road. Um, But we also understand that there's some wiggle room there, that we know when those speed limits are going to be enforced. So you often see people driving within, say, 10 miles an hour of the speed limit. So they're not obeying the law, but the law is shaping their behavior. Um, And this is another crucial thing that um, I want readers and also my students to understand. Um, that law is created by people, but it also in turn shapes behavior. It molds the way that we think about the world. Um, And this kind of gets me to this idea of legal language and legal categories. Um, So English law in particular has a lot of legal categories and procedures. um, And those things are really important, in some cases more important than substance. So one of the premises of the book is, and, and you know, I would argue for colonial America in general, is that legal language really matters, that these English categories and procedures and old tools that colonists brought with them from England really shaped how they viewed their world and how they interacted um, in colonial societies. Um, and I, I like to to use the example of categorizing people as property. This is sort of the principal legal fiction upon which slavery is based. And this language mattered, not just from an economic perspective, which I'm definitely interested in, but in shaping colonial realities, in calling into being a reality that didn't exist before this happened. Um, So in the long run, um, as I argue in the book, calling slaves chattel property, and we can get into this legal category and what it meant, um, affected how colonists thought about those people. And replicated over time, I think it continued uh, to influence how Americans, even in the New Republic, into the antebellum South, and even today, think about people of African descent. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point when thinking about um, how the law influences the way people think, you know, your analogy to speed limits is, you know, even though people might break that law on a daily basis, they're still nonetheless being influenced by it. And so when we think about slavery in particular, and how the law developed around that, you know, when we think about how the law sort of helped slavery um, sort of develop and grow, there's a reason that people sort of, as you were talking about, start to think about in, in you know, just one case, um, people of African descent as property. What does that mean for how these people are thought about in society writ large? Yeah, exactly. Um, as I as I read through all of these litigation records and sort of saw how uh, colonists start analogizing enslaved people to other forms of property, you can see the power of that that analogy of that um, of that legal fiction that people are property, and to see how that that actually became a reality that it wasn't just a fiction that or they didn't perceive it any longer just as a fiction that people of African descent were less than human, but it actually came to be their reality. And so, when we think about property law and how it was used. Um, in relation to slavery, how exactly did colonists start to use property law to manage slavery? How did that sort of develop over time? Sure. Um, and to start off, uh, I think we think again about slave law in particular as being a creature of legislation. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, but we see slave law as coming from the slave codes that are promulgated by colonial legislatures. But if you dig into actual practice, what you start to see is that English property law is really at the heart of slave societies. Um, and the system, this property law system, depends on classifying enslaved people as chattel property. I think we're used to chattel property as this catchphrase, uh, and people don't interrogate its meaning very often, but it's a legal term of art, and it really meant something uh, in this uh, very English colonial context. Um, in England, land is the most important type of property, and land is called real estate, as it is today. So there are lots of protections in the law for real estate. Um, it was harder to buy and sell. It was more difficult, say, if a landowner um, accrued a lot of debts for creditors to attach that land, to take that land in payment of debt. Um, so there's real estate on one side, but then chattel property is on the other side. Chattel property is movable property, personal property, things like livestock or furniture. Um, and it had fewer protections. It was a lot easier to buy and sell. And really crucially for the colonial context, creditors could attach chattel property. Um, to dive into the economic weeds, um, if creditors could attach property, they were more likely to give people credit because they know that they have a remedy. Um, so th this credit debt dance becomes pretty important in the colonial context. Um, as, as historians have shown, American colonists are perpetually in debt and particularly planters in places like Virginia and South Carolina. Why are they in debt? In many cases, they are going into debt to buy land and slaves and then later on consumer goods. So when you treat enslaved people 
um, who are your property as chattel property rather than real estate, it makes sure that creditors can have access to those slaves in case of default. And those creditors in turn are more likely to extend credit, to loan money to slave owners who would often use that credit to buy more land and slaves. Um, so there's this really uh, complicated economics behind treating enslaved people as chattel property. Um, it starts out uh, sort of in practice um, among as a custom among merchants. So if you look at documents from the Royal African Company, which had a monopoly on the slave trade uh, in the early part of colonization, the Royal African Company starts treating enslaved people as chattel property in its forms, in its daily practice um, at a very early date. And then transatlantic slave traders, private slave traders who kind of succeed the Royal African Company, they adopt that practice and so do colonists. So in places like South Carolina and Jamaica, you see colonists treating enslaved people like chattel property, referring to them as either chattels or movable property or merchandise. And then that finally creeps into colonial legislation. So if you look at the slave codes promulgated by colonial legislatures, you see this very interesting balancing act. Colonists are trying to decide, do we classify enslaved people as chattel property or as real estate? And there are are moments in which enslaved people are classified as real estate. But the overarching trend is to classify people as enslaved people as chattel property, primarily for that reason of giving creditors access to enslaved people. Um, and we see this, I should note, not just in places like South Carolina, but it was the commercial practice in places like New England, um, where historians have started to uncover more of, a, of the slave trading um, legacy in New England. And I think this is like a really important point when talking about sort of the development of the institution of slavery, because it was quite literally a development. It wasn't something that just sort of came into being one day, sort of fully formed. You know, you're talking about how people quite literally were making conscious choices and debating, you know, how are we going to define slavery? How are we going to define enslaved people? Um, and, you know, what is this whole process going to look like? What laws that already exist and sort of legal concepts as you're talking about, might we be able to borrow or rely on for this? Right. And what's really interesting, too, is occasionally you will see um, – imperial administrators interjecting themselves in these debates. So it's not as if this debate is, is occurring just in the American colonies. You, you have people from the Board of Trade, for example, or the Attorney General um, for, the, for, the, um, for the Crown arguing about, you know, is it okay to, to classify people as, as chattel property or should they be classified as real estate? Um, so you do see these moments, interesting moments of, of dialogue uh, between between center and periphery about these ideas. And one of the things that you've mentioned before um, in this interview and one of the things that you look at in your book is sort of as we were talking about using these sort of established uh, legal concepts and sort of applying them to slavery. And one of those things uh, that you look at is something called a conditional bond. And so what is a conditional bond and why is it sort of important for the story of slavery's development? So the conditional bond is 
a very old legal instrument. It comes out of medieval England. And to put it simply, it's this document that a creditor and a debtor would execute that would secure a debt, meaning it would ensure that if a debt wasn't paid, that the creditor could take the debtor to court over the debt. Um, And it's got this very long, complicated medieval history dating from medieval England. Um, but the point of the matter is, if you had one of these documents, you could sue and gain damages in common law courts. This wasn't always the case for different types of debt. Um, in colonial societies, uh, it was really common, for example, in local economies to have things like book debt. You know, you buy something at the store, the shopkeeper writes it down. If you don't pay it, well, then the shopkeeper knows where to find you. So different types of debt are good for different types of economies. And those local transaction book debt and other types of unsecured debt work for those local economies, but they don't work for transatlantic trade. For transatlantic trade, you need a legal guarantee that someone is going to pay their obligations. You need to be able to take them to court. And the conditional bond was a document that made that possible. So what happens is as English merchants start to fan out across the globe, they start using conditional bonds to secure their transactions, right? Because in this giant economy, in the Atlantic world, you can't run around and find all of your debtors and done them and get them to pay their debts on time. So the conditional bond allows you to take that debtor into court. How does this work? How does it apply to slavery? Well, the transatlantic slave trade was one of the riskiest ventures in the Atlantic world. Every step of that trade um, was, uh, was made possible by debt. And the riskiest part of the trade was that someone was going to default on their debt. So what we see is over time, transatlantic slave traders, starting with the Royal African Company, start to require conditional bonds of purchasers, of factors, in order to make sure that they are paying debts for slaves. Um, And in the book, I trace this back to colonies like South Carolina and Jamaica, where you see these bonds start to circulate in local economies. Um, And one thing that's really interesting to me about this process is how the print revolution accelerates it. So we like to think of the print revolution as this amazing thing. You know, it opens up a the public sphere. It gives people access to news and information, but it also made these smaller commercial practices like slave trading possible. Um, So printed conditional bonds start to show up in places like South Carolina in the 1720s and 1730s. And these make it really easy for colonists to buy and sell slaves uh, without having to have a lawyer help them. It reduces transaction costs and just as a practical matter, makes the whole process a lot simpler. And I think that sort of is really important when thinking about um, the law and what's going on and sort of the daily practices, because I think for a lot of people um, today, it might be sort of the law is sort of an, um, you know, unwieldy, you know, just sort of abstract thing. And even for people back then, but, you know, when you have ways to sort of simplify 
how to, for example, you know, literally buy a person so that you don't need to have as much of an understanding of sort of formal law, then you're able to participate both in those legal proceedings and in that economy on a much easier scale um, or much more easily and on a larger scale as you're talking about. Right. And it's particularly important in an English legal context where getting the wording right is really important. English law is notoriously um, jargon ridden during this period. And if you didn't write the phrase correctly or say the precise formula of words, it, it wasn't likely that a court would enforce or, or would carry out your wishes. Uh, so these printed forms helped colonists and slave traders make sure that they got the language right so they could accomplish whatever it was they wanted to accomplish at law. Um, and I think this is pretty crucial to understand. We're not used to um, a procedure-bound or jargon-bound legal system in the way that these colonists were. They had to navigate this pretty complex legal environment, um, and in many cases without a lawyer. And so when thinking about, you know, another area of law that you look at, um, you look at admiralty laws and how colonists were able to rely on these laws to claim and expand slavery. And so, you know, for people who are not familiar with laws and everything like that, um, what is an admiralty <laughs> law just on a sort of basic level? You know, people might be like, admiralty, is that talking about the sea? Like, um, so what's an admiralty law and, and how were people able to use this? You know, we, we were just talking about how, you know, the transatlantic slave trade is quite literally transatlantic and you know how these conditional bonds made something like a transatlantic economy possible when it came to selling people um what is the place of admiralty laws in that Sure. Yeah, your instinct that admiralty has something to do with the sea is 100% correct. Um, and I love talking about admiralty law because I think that most people aren't familiar with it, um, but people in the British Atlantic world would have been. Um, so admiralty law is a branch of English law. And again, this is an old type of law in, in the medieval period. Um, you also uh, get some admiralty law that comes from the European continent. And basically, it um, it involves legal practices at sea. So ad admiralty courts and vice admiralty courts are jurisdictions that dot the Atlantic world. And there's a high court of admiralty in England. And in the colonies, some colonies, there are vice admiralty courts. And basically what they do, they have a regulatory aspect. Um, I, I like to think about it this way. They kind of regulate life at sea. If you think about sort of the age of sail, there's a lot going on on the ocean. There are these ships that are transecting the Atlantic. Um, and there's crime on those ships. Um, people are living aboard those ships. They're being paid wages or they're supposed to be paid wages. So part of what vice admiralty courts did is they dealt with those kind of disputes. And you see a lot of, of sailors, for example, um, bring claims in admiralty courts, but also colonists who live in coastal locations. Um, you see owners of ships litigating in these courts. Um, and there's some fabulous, really interesting cases there's a lot of violence on transatlantic ships, and um, those criminal cases are often heard in the vice admiralty context. Um, but there's also a property law component, um, and this uh, is particularly important during wartime. So, and we all know the 18th century is uh, the heyday of these of these wars that involved um, ships, and particularly in the Caribbean and also in sort of the the northeastern theater. And what would happen is if you had a private 
privateer or a member of the British Navy that captured a ship, you would have to haul it into one of these vice admiralty courts. And the court's job would be to condemn the ship and all of its cargo. And this is crucial. Vice Admiralty Courts actually had jurisdiction not over people, but over things, particularly ships and cargo and rigging. And these are pretty valuable things. And what I saw in the colonial context, though, was when, say, in South Carolina, someone hauls in a ship to have it condemned. They would also ask to have all of the enslaved and sometimes even free Black mariners aboard the ship, condemned, just like cargo. And you see this analogy of enslaved people to maritime cargo. Um, So it's this really um, fascinating but horrible, again, extension of an analogy um, to suit the needs of a slave society. Um, And you see that this language of admiralty courts um, is, is frequently applied to people of color regardless of their legal status. Um, I encountered enslaved black mariners, but also free black people um, who often wish push back against their designation as property in court. So one of the things that really fascinates me about these records is you get a chance to see resistance um, and it here it described in ways that you don't see in other court records. So, for example, free black mariners who are claimed as property arguing before the court in South Carolina that, no, we are actually subjects of the king of Spain and we can't be treated as property. And then Interestingly, you have the South Carolina court agree with them to side with these black mariners in that case. So there are moments that you can see when black mariners in particular challenge their categorization as property. Um, You also get a chance to see how life at sea changed the racial power dynamics to a certain extent. And Kevin Dawson has written extensively about this, Um, but how enslaved mariners, um, but also free black Black mariners held positions often of authority, um, sometimes over white crew members aboard these ships, and how the fact that they had a skill set that was um, highly desirable gave them leverage, gave them more agency at sea. Um, So looking at the records of these vice admiralty courts opens up this entirely new world um, that allows you to see the extent of resistance um, and the fact that enslaved people never passively accepted their categorization as property. And I think that's really crucial to remember. And when thinking about other areas of law, one of the things that you look at is equity. And I think for a lot of people today, especially people who are you know not legally trained, uh, the word equity in law, they have they probably have no idea what what that is because it's not really a part of our modern law as much as it was back then. You don't see, you know, people talking about equity in courts on law and order, for example, these days. And so for, you know, our listeners, what is equity? Why was it such a big deal um, back then? And then how was it used to um, further solidify the commodification of enslaved people? 
So equity today is this um, is a word that I think we think of as connoting fairness or justice, um, and I think those are those are helpful definitions. But in early modern England and in the American colonial context, equity also meant a set of rules and procedures. And in England, in particular, it's a jurisdiction, a type of court. Um, in England, it's the Chancery Court, and it comes out of the medieval period um, as a court of the king's justice. So the crown is understood as the font of justice in England in the early modern period. Um, And there's this notion that if you couldn't get justice, um, or if you couldn't get uh, your desired legal outcome in a common law court in another jurisdiction, you should be able to go to the king or the king's court for justice. And that's how the the court of chancery grows up in England. Um, It has religious connotations. So some of the the chancellors in early modern England, people like Thomas More, um, are uh, are associated with the church. Um, But as, as the early modern period progresses, it sort of loses those connotations, and it really becomes a particular area of practice to the and a very rule-bound area of practice. By the time we get to the 19th century, for example, most uh, people who are familiar with Charles Dickens and Bleak House remember that the Chancery Court is that sort of plodding institution where cases take like three or four years to be adjudicated, sometimes even longer. Um, So this Chantry Court grows up um, and it mainly is hearing by this time, hearing cases involving inheritance or really complex commercial disputes. And what's interesting to me is that some colonies have chancery courts and some don't. So in places like Virginia, what happens is a flattening of jurisdictions. As you sort of move from England, you get county courts in Virginia that handle the chancery practice as well as the typical common law practices. Um, But South Carolina has its own chancery court uh, and there are other colonies like it. And in these courts, um, the same sort of thing happens. You see people coming to court who are complaining that they can't get justice in any of the other other jurisdictions. And therefore, um, in the interest of equity, of fairness, they need to have their case heard in chancery. Um, The records are fantastic because uh, it's a particular type of procedure where people give depositions, same as depositions today. It's just a full accounting of the case, unlike in other types of courts. So you get a um, a lot of colorful accounts of colonial life. And as I was reading um, all of the chancery records from South Carolina, because there's a wonderful manuscript collection at the South Carolina Department of Archives and History, slaves kept popping up, right? You keep re- I kept reading about enslaved people, no matter the, the type of dispute. Um, there were almost always enslaved people involved in the dispute, either as sort of uh, participants or as objects, right? As objects being claimed by colonists, um, for example, in an inheritance dispute. And one of the fascinating things about this, and scholars have explored this in other contexts, is that in chancery, women could bring cases. So you don't often see litigation records um, in which a woman is a plaintiff in other types of jurisdictions, but you do in chancery. And so you can see women, in particular from South Carolina, 
claiming enslaved people as property, right? And um, for me, it was eye-opening because it buttressed a lot of the other scholarship that has emerged recently, suggesting that, that women were involved to a great extent in the transference, in the ownership of slave property, and, and in the slave society's governance. Um, so even though they don't show up in the records a lot, um, there were women slave owners, and they were just as ruthless about claiming enslaved people as were their husbands and fathers. And one of the things that you look at that's, that's really interesting is, you know, we've been talking about how English law develops across the sort of English empire and in South Car- Carolina specifically. And sort of towards the end of the book, you look at sort of how English law sort of collides with the, you know, um, sort of rising American states during the revolution, basically. And so you have this collision of, or at least what you might sort of think of as a collision between English and sort of proto-American laws uh, in Charleston as it's occupied by British forces. And so what did that look look like? And what sort of surprising dynamics might have been at play there? Yeah, it's a really good question. I wanted to take the book up through the revolution because I was very interested in seeing what would happen to this legal system, um, particularly as you get this heavy mix in the late 18th century of sort of a burgeoning anti-slavery thought, um, all our connotations of Great Britain in the in the end of the 18th century and in the 19th century is this empire of liberty. Um, how did that work on the ground in a place that was occupied by the British? Um, so I looked at Charlestown during the revolutionary occupation by British forces. Um, there's some really interesting newspaper records and also court records from the Board of Police, which is this board that governed Charlestown during the British occupation. And one of the most fascinating things for me was I saw that even though a lot of things were different, that the law remained the same and the application of the law, and in particular, the treatment of enslaved people as property. So the British come into Charlestown, you know, despite sort of some of them having sort of anti-slavery thinking, right, despite some of them sort of claiming an interest in anti-slavery. For example, we we think a lot about Lord Dunmore's proclamation. Um, Lord Dunmore is the governor of Virginia, and he issues this proclamation promising freedom to Black people who would leave their patriot masters and fight for the British. Um, So there are these sort of sentiments and statements that are in the Atlantic world at the time. Nonetheless, if you look at what British officers especially were doing on the ground, they were perpetuating the slave system, right? They came in with the assumption that enslaved people were property at law. Now, I think that there are a lot of practical and and tactical reasons that happened. For example, the British are trying to maintain the support of loyalists, for example, and loyalists in South Carolina are slave owners. So if they offer to liberate slaves, those loyalists will abandon their cause, right? So that's a practical reason. Um, But they're also doing it even in the face of... uh, 
massive resistance from enslaved people and sort of claims to justice from enslaved people on the ground, right? So even though there's not the equivalent of Dunmore's proclamation in South Carolina, it is assumed by many enslaved people that if they flee behind British lines and work for the British military, that they will then be freed, that they'll earn their freedom. Um, and many British officers believe that this should be the case. Um, and we see accounts uh, throughout the occupation of enslaved people actually making those claims, saying, I served the British army at the siege of Charlestown, and now I'm a free person. Okay, so British, uh, so enslaved people are claiming that freedom for themselves. And some British officers say we are honor bound, right, to fulfill our obligations, to keep our promises to these people. But for the most part, that doesn't happen, right? Um, a few or some loyalists get out at the end of the war when Charlestown is evacuated, but a lot of them don't. Many of them are either returned to their uh, their rebel owners or their, their erstwhile rebel, rebel owners. Some of them are transported down into the Caribbean um, with fleeing loyalists. So they, they, I've followed some as they, as they move from Florida and then into Jamaica. Um, and so they don't escape uh, slavery despite their service to the crown. Um, and what this really showed me was how difficult it was to jump the ruts of this legal system, right? This sort of this system and mindset and reality in South Carolina that enslaved people were property. Um, the British didn't have the will to do that, right? And there are practical reasons, but they didn't have the will or interest in doing that, in upsetting the slave system. Um, and you can see this paradigm even continue if you look at emancipation in the British system, which happens after the American Revolution, um, there's a compensation scheme in place for British emancipation. So slave owners are compensated for emancipating their, their slaves. So that assumes that enslaved people are still property. Um, and it was just fascinating to me because I think I had expected something different. I had expected to see a more liberationist attitude among more um, British officers, members of the military. Um, instead, you see the sort of rapaciousness of people who are operating in this colonial environment. And so what was the sort of, you know, legacy of this colonial legal history in the new nation as you sort of, you know, look at it in the sort of endings of the books, you sort of go into, you know, the nation and the, in the early republic and, you know, what some of these sort of, you know, immediate repercussions of this history were? Yeah, so if you think about it, um, the American Revolution is a, is a legal upheaval. You have Americans who are moving from being British subjects to American citizens. Um, and, and in many ways, it, it's, a, it's a revolutionary change. But when you look at how legal practice um, occurred in the early republic, um, especially with regard to slavery and enslaved people, I found more continuity than change. Again, um, the colonial system, this set of practices and ways of thinking about enslaved people 
became a template, right? And this system is rooted in property law, again, and in an assumption that enslaved people are property. Other historians have called this the chattel principle, this idea that there are that enslaved people are people with a price, that they're commodities. Um, and as the nations, as the nation grows uh, and expands westward, you can see that South Carolina in particular um, and its slave laws and practices become a pattern for the new states of the Deep South. So looking at what happens in South Carolina matters because it's a real precedent for what happens in those um, those areas that will eventually become uh, the, the sort of cotton growing areas of the new republic. Um, so again, if we think of it as uh, this legal system create and legal language creating ruts in the road, that it makes it harder for Americans to jump the ruts, even despite the upheavals of the American Revolution and what that means for the legal system. Um, it becomes difficult to reconcile the sentiments of the Declaration, all people are created equal, with the reality of a slaveholder's constitution, a constitution that in many ways buttressed the institution of slavery. Um, and so it just brings me back to this idea that legal categories and practices matter uh, to a greater extent than we might think from the beginning. We think that categories and jargon and procedure, that's kind of boring. It's not very interesting. Um, but in fact, it it really sets important precedents for behavior. And so we have this great book in front of us, once again, Bonds of Empire, The English Origins of Slave Law in South Carolina and British Plantation America, 1660 to 1783. And I always encourage our listeners to become readers and go and pick up the book themselves. But we have this great one in front of us. What can we expect from you in the future? What are you working on now? And this book just came out. So if you want to say that you are taking a much-deserved break, that is completely okay. Oh, uh, I'm excited to be working on something else. Um, and it's a logical extension of this project. Um, I loved working with Vice Admiralty Records. I found them fascinating. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested right now in exploring the legal lives of colonial British American mariners, both black and white, because um, I encountered so many of them in the records from South Carolina and Jamaica in particular, um, that I am planning archival trips to look at vice admiralty records from across the American colonies. Um, and what I'm really interested in understanding is how they learned about English law in the first case, right? So what I saw was mariners who were incredibly legally astute, like aware of legal practices and precedents throughout the empire. How did they find out about that? I'm very interested in that question. Um, and then I want to know how, how did they learn about and navigate this legal system, like right? sort of as a practical matter? How did a mariner make a claim in a vice admiralty court? Because what you see um, in other historians like Marcus Redeker have already talked about this is a lot of solidarity. Um, English law assumes that mariners are somewhat incapacitated, incapable of helping themselves at law. And so there's a system set up in which they can join together to make claims, right? So there's a, there's solidarity among some mariners. I'm, I'm certain that this is not always the case, um, but I found examples in which it is. Um, how does that happen? How does that work as a practical matter? Um, and I also kind of in keeping with the first book, 
I want to know more about how English law and their ideas about English law structured and channeled their world. Like how did how did law um, set the boundaries for behavior? When did they transgress those boundaries and why? And to what extent that influenced life um, in coastal areas, right? In, in seaboards where mariners were an important presence. So that's my next project. And I'm look, looking forward after, um, as archives are lifting their COVID restrictions to, to head back in and start sifting through some records. Well, I'm sure once you have that done, we will have you right back onto the program. But in any case, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks, Derek. It was really fun.